Uh, welcome. If you're new here today, you're a guest with us. Uh, we've been walking through a series called The Journey of a Lifetime. And the series fundamentally is about our journey towards spiritual maturity, but maybe more important is how do we help somebody else in that journey towards spiritual maturity? See, that's the challenge for us as we, the call to, to make disciples. But even parents, I just get a reminder to you, you are called to equip your children. One of the things I work at hard is I try to change the language from don't worry about nurturing your kids so much as discipling your children. The goal I think that we need to have as parents is that we would have kingdom children that we would have children come to a place where they could turn around and actually begin to help walk with somebody else toward Christ. That's our goal. But there's a framework that we have, and it comes out of Colossians 1, 28 and 29. And this is kind of our theme verse that we've been working off of, and my goal is that you'd have this memorized at some point, and we'll even say it out loud here one of these weeks. But it reads this, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, I've said this before, but one of the challenges for us is that the church probably hasn't done a great job in defining what is spiritual maturity. Matter of fact, when you compare it to the school systems of today, we work so hard at taking a kid and here, first grade, they need to know this. Sixth grade, they need to know this. As they graduate as a senior, here's some outcomes that they need to know, concepts they need to learn, those things that we need to, as they propel them toward adulthood and toward a career or college. And when you translate that kind of thinking back into the church, you go, huh, maybe we haven't worked very hard at really figuring out how to disciple people all that well. The other passage that we've been really using as a backdrop for this is 1 John chapter 2, 12 through 14. And this is a, a, a short text that gives us a picture of movement spiritually. It talks about children in their faith. And again, this is not age. Then it talks about young men, and you could put young men or young women, and then fathers and mothers. And it gives some qualities, some characteristics at those different ages, or stages, I should say, in terms of where people are at spiritually. And for today, I want to put, again, to remind you of 1 John 2, and I'll put it on the screen. There's verse 13. It begins, look what I'm writing to you, young men. This is the middle category of spiritual development. Because you have overcome the evil one. There's a quality there. Verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He repeats that again. Three qualities of a young man. So what we've been using is the idea of really illustrating it with this idea of bridges and pillars. This idea that, that in order to cross from childhood to this young man, young place, there's, some, there's a bridge that has to be built, but there has to be these pillars, these ideas, these concepts that help us cross over to the next phase. So there is a development in terms of the understanding. And last week we looked, we finished actually, 
the first pillar, and it was around this idea of the ability to overcome the evil one. And if you missed that the last couple of Sundays, it's online. You can go and listen to that. But it's really how do we deal with Satan? How do we deal with the impact of the fall? Our understanding of sin and what really is it? But we need to approach another pillar here today. Because it comes from that phrase, it says this, you are strong, the quality of that young man. It implies that in the journey of a lifetime, this idea of moving towards spiritual maturity, spiritual strength is beginning to take place. And like building physical strength, building spiritual strength is absolutely crucial, but it's not about the muscles, it's about the mind, the will, and really the heart and even the soul of who we are. But the question, how does one know that we're actually developing spiritual muscle? Strength. You know, physical strength, we can see it when people are working out. And we realize that spiritual resist or physical resistance often is the byproduct, is strength, isn't it? But I think it's fair to say this, that spiritual strength is activated and it's demonstrated when adversity comes. When weight is added on to our lives. And I want to show you a passage this morning that really shows spiritual strength from Paul's perspective. Again, this writer of, first, of Colossians, but he's writing to the church of Corinth here in 2 Corinthians verse 4, and it would begin verse 8. You know for yourselves that we're not much to look at. We've been surrounded and battered by troubles. But we're not demoralized. We're not sure what to do. But we know that God knows what to do. We've been spiritually terrorized. But God has, hasn't left our side. We've been thrown down, but we haven't broken. What they did to Jesus, they do to us. Trial and torture, mockery and murder. What Jesus did among them, he does in us. He lives. Our lives are at constant risk for Jesus' sake, which makes Jesus' life all the more evident in us. While we're going through the worst, you're getting in on the best. Now that's from the message version here. But do you see the manifestation of spiritual strength here? Now, I've got a reminder, everybody, it doesn't happen overnight. But when the world comes crashing down, God wants to build into our lives spiritual strength and the ability to have a power that overcomes that which the world is giving us. And the fact that John writes to these young men, says, young men, the quality is you're becoming strong. And we realize that something's taking place where people are moving from a childlike faith into a place where spiritual strength is happening. And it's a process again. You think of just even physical strength, how it takes time to do that. There's a puberty, spiritual puberty, puberty that's, I think, kicking in here. And, and something's happening where there all of a sudden obstacles come into our lives and we can handle them in a, in a different way. But the key to this movement, how do we understand as to how we get to this place? And how do we... How do, maybe even ask the question, are we getting there? You know, when people look at our lives, do they see spiritual strength? Or do they see something else? Is there 
more childlike faith in who we are. Well, let me put up on the screen Colossians 1.29 again. I, there's a nuance here i got to throw into this. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, what took place in Paul's life where spiritual strength was not just about effort, where he was able to draw on the power of the Holy Spirit, and that became the source of his, his strength. Now, I, I believe one aspect of it, we're going to get to it in a couple of weeks, it's really that third pillar, that the Word of God lives in you. And, and we're going to dig that apart for a couple of weeks. But that was one component of it. But I think there's another piece to it here this morning that we need to wrestle with as well. And it has to do really more with our hearts than it is anything else. But let me give you the definition then of this, this pillar of maturing in terms of spiritual strength, if you're following along in the outline there in the bulletin. Spiritual strength, the spiritual child must grow to believe and embrace. And that's a stronger than just believing. That movement toward maturity is realized, and here's the key, by a deepening identity in and with Christ. It's the idea of spiritual identity. See, I think it's fair to say here, though, as we look at the life of Paul, he was a father in his faith when he wrote these passages as well. But you go, where did it come from? Why did he have this power and strength within him that he could even draw on the Holy Spirit for his strength? So here's this, this piece, this, this critical piece that I believe is wrapped around this piece of spiritual identity in Christ. And the identity, folks, in order for us to have strength, our identity has to change. It has to be built on Christ and Christ alone. But let me show you a passage where I think it shows this of Paul and his life. Philippians chapter 1. Now notice the context. I've got to give you the context of this, this letter that he's writing. He is in jail here. That's his setting. He's in jail and you understand, at that time, Nero is going after Christians, killing them, putting them in the, re in the arena to be slaughtered. They were, they were struggling. It was a church that was, yeah, it was exploding, but there was a great deal of persecution. That is the context of it. Look at verse 18, though. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Do you feel the confidence of Paul even right there? Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, there's strength there. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, even there, just to stop a moment, you realize he doesn't fear death. And a lot of people in our culture, even within the church, fear death. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, 
for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that in in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, he's come to a place in his life where he says, for me to live is Christ. And I, I think that it sums up, it is the pinnacle of Paul's life when it comes to his spiritual identity. See, he sums up that that's his purpose, to live in this world. But I don't know if you caught there, woven into that passage is really Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He's looking, should I be go, go with Jesus or should I stay here? And he's, and he's thinking, you know what, I need to stay here. For your benefit... It reads there, I will remain in 25 and continue with all of you for your progress. Do you see the other-centeredness? He's looking at people, even sitting in jail, thinking, how can I push them toward Jesus, toward spiritual maturity? Now here's where i got to stop and and push some of us here this morning. And I, I realize in any church there are different places where people are at spiritually and and you know what if you're young in your faith right now um, I'm hoping that I don't put pressure on you to be this young man overnight but I need to say something for you that maybe for you guys that are a little bit older in your faith um, so if, if you're younger in your faith think about what you're having for lunch here for a moment okay but if you've been one that's been walking with Jesus for years and looking to walk with Christ. Here's a hard question. What was the reason for coming to church this morning? Was there any piece to that reason that God actually might put somebody else in my life for this hour, hour and a half that you're here today? That God wants to bring somebody into your life that he wants a conversation to go, I can help them just take one small step where they're at toward Christ. Was that anywhere in your motive of walking into this place? Do you understand the challenge to that question for us that have been in the faith for a while? See, if Paul walked in here today, do we really think that his motive would be something like this? He'd come out, Ken, and I sure hope you get a good, exciting sermon that feeds me this morning, and I sure hope that I want the worship music that I want to worship with. I go, no. Do you understand the motive of Paul's life was to look at other people and go, I want to help move them toward Jesus when Hebrews 10, 25 writes this, don't give up meeting together some are in the habit of doing. When you apply that to Sunday morning, is that just about having a nice worship service on a Sunday morning? And I go, can't be. See, God wants to use us more than that. For us that have been around in our faith, he wants to use us. But let me go down another alley again, because some of you come into this place you know what, I understand this. You're discouraged. You're needing hope. 
But here's something I would like you to ponder. I would like you to be aware that Satan wants to throw a lie at you if you're discouraged and there's a loss of hope happening in your life right now. See, the temptation is to believe the lie that says this, because I'm at that place spiritually and emotionally, therefore God cannot use me in somebody else's life. And folks, that's a lie. Man, I, I think of Moses. You just read the story of Moses and you see his discouragement, the struggles that he had. Elijah, I am convinced that Elijah struggled with chronic depression. And yet God used him in a mighty way. David sinned and was forgiven. God used him. Paul was discouraged at times. See, I think there's this place where I, I think we look and go, God will only use me if we're at a place where we're really feeling good about ourselves. And I go, no. See, I, I got to remind all of us one thing. God actually chooses not to use perfect spiritual people. He chooses to use flawed people in the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of God. But we need to get back to this identity. What's this about identity that actually is intersecting with this issue of strength? And how do we get to that place where there's a strength like Paul that says, for me to live is Christ. And it's actualized in our lives. It's not just the same. Well, let me begin to unpack some things here. I'm going to warn you, I'm not going to get done today. So it's, we're going to continue in the next week. But I want to put up a couple questions. And the first one, and it's, that's deeply connected to this issue of our identity in Christ. And if you're following the notes there, it's on the screen. Where do I find meaning and purpose in my life? Have you ever stopped and pondered that question? Where do you find meaning and purpose in your life? And there's a second one that actually fits. It's kind of like a coin. Number two, I said it this way. What am I living for? What's my activity where I'm really living it out that's defining my meaning? See, the answer to those questions will determine the direction of your life. And it reveals how we answer these questions. It reveals our, our identity. And if our purpose in life is wrong, the direction will be wrong. If the purpose is vague and kind of fuzzy or confused, the direction in life will be fuzzy and confused. And if we don't know that what is our purpose, I think this, the world and all of its stuff is just going to push us along like the waves and we're going to go in a direction that the world wants to define as our lives. It should be. And I also believe this, when people don't think about it, they don't have that purpose, I think there's a, a reverting that takes place within our souls, and, it, and it's like this, the goal becomes this, I just want to be happy. I, I want my life, I want, just want to be joyful and happy. But the problem with happiness, it's elusive because circumstances change all the time. And, and happiness at times, I, I think is this, it actually just covers pain in people's lives. They don't want to go there. But here's, let me push farther, because there's 
another question that goes with those two. And this starts at a very young age, number three. The question is this, who am I? Now, oftentimes, if you're a teenager, you ask that question. You kind of grow up in this world and go, who am I? What am I about? If you're older, isn't that a relative question? It's an important question for us as well. You know what? We go to work. We pay bills. We eat. We do this. We do that. We retire. We get old. And we die. Is that the purpose of life? But recognize those three questions all intersect in terms of our spiritual identity. But I got to go farther here because there's two more questions that are planted deep within our hearts that have to do with our identity, our spiritual identity, and understand they're connected to the Garden of Eden and the fall. Number four for your notes, I said it this way. Will I be accepted? And understand that question. It is the deepest longing within our souls, within our hearts. Will somebody accept me? We could rephrase it and say, will somebody love me? It is the longing of the heart, the desire to be loved and unconditionally accepted. It's a part of humanity, but the challenge is is that the Garden of Eden and the fall shaped how we answer that question. But when a child comes out of a womb, when we celebrated some new births here the last couple weeks here, a child comes out, and deep within that soul of that child, that child longs to feel the love of a mother. To be held in such a way, there's that caring touch of another person when a dad holds it or a grandma or grandpa. A child wants to be loved deep within them, to be accepted. You know, and here's the reality. In a place like this, there's people today that don't feel loved and accepted. Years ago, I remember listening to a documentary it was surrounding young moms. And they were interviewing this 13-year-old girl who had intentionally gotten pregnant. And I remember, it was so stunning, I remember the announcer asking her the question, why did you want to get pregnant? And these were the words that came out of her mouth, I just want somebody to love me. She was looking for a child to give her that deep longing of being loved. Do you understand the tension now that we live in a world where that longing is there? And if we're not certain of being loved and accepted, it creates another dilemma for us. Matter of fact, it creates another question. Number five, I said it this way, will I be rejected? And you recognize that then becomes our greatest fear. If we, I want to be loved so much, but what if somebody rejects me? What if everybody rejects me? Our greatest longing, our greatest fear. Here's the challenge, and I want to put up just a little bit of a 
illustration. I, I don't have it filled in, but you see on the screen there, a person who is spiritually younger in their faith, and then you got this young man or woman that would say there's some spiritual strength and muscle growing. And then you part, start putting those questions to it. Where do I find meaning and purpose in my life? And do you realize that for a child in their, that stage of development, it is going to be profoundly different than a young man and a woman as well as a father down the line or mother. When you go to those questions, where, what am I living for? It's going to look different with a child in their faith versus a young man versus a father and mother. We could create those categories. We could fill in those blanks. Will I be rejected? The response to that. Or how I'm, I, I need to be loved. You, you understand there's a profound difference with they, but what a child in the faith believes versus a young man versus a father and a mother in the faith. And we'll be going there here next week. But see, people want to answer, where is the me- where's my life? Where's meaning in my life? And you think of other religions out there. And when you begin to layer religions on those questions, okay, you think of a Buddhist. It isn't for me to live as Christ. It's not even close. For me to live as good karma. Why? Why is that the purpose? So that death will bring a better reincarnation at the next life. Islam teaches that the purpose of life is to live to obey Allah. And if I do enough good deeds and obey him enough, then I'm going to achieve somehow this personal paradise in the kingdom. And if I don't obey, my purpose has been squashed. Do you understand the tension when you look at Paul's life and you go, for me to live as Christ is vastly different than any religion of the world. So I need to dig some more with you here this morning. Because recognize this, there are roadblocks to moving to a place where we have the strength that says, for me to live is Christ. There are spiritual roadblocks that keep us from having spiritual strength and spiritual power. Check you out your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3. I, I need to just walk through this real quickly with you because it, it tells us and it gives us pictures of these roadblocks so we can move toward a spiritual identity so we can have spiritual strength. Look at Genesis 3.6. Begin there. Again, they've just taken of the tree. They've just eaten that fruit. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was the light of the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Realize what just happened in the world. Something they had never experienced before. The the identity of Adam and Eve changed. It changed the way they related to each other with other people. The first roadblock, number one there for your notes, to an identity in Christ is this, is shame. 
The def- here's a definition of shame. A painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Humiliation, that word. We don't like that. But somehow that took place within the garden and they're sowing fig leaves, leaves together to cover themselves. And have you ever stopped and pondered that there's no one else there? Why does it even matter? But something happened and they were shamed at that point. And it changed their identity forever. But keep going. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So here's another block to our spiritual identity. For Adam and Eve it started and now it's here for us. Number two, we hide and we put up walls with people. And that's spiritual walls and emotional walls. Think of an illustration like this. We meet somebody in the grocery store. Hi, Bill. We walk up and start talking to Bill. And we go, Bill, how you doing? Fine. Isn't this great weather? And we don't know that Bill's daughter, we don't realize this, is Bill's daughter had just gotten picked up for drunk driving and has run away. But Bill won't share that. Why? Shame comes rolling in. What if they think me as a bad parent? What if? See, isn't it true at these times that when we hide that our identity in Christ, it goes straight to the toilet? For me to live in Christ at that moment when we're hiding, it doesn't happen. It's the farthest thing from our mind and it's the farthest reality from where we're at. See, spiritual strength, power, there is none at that point when we're hiding. Let me keep going. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. A third roadblock there, number three, is fear. I was afraid, so I hid. But notice, I don't know if you catch this nuance of it. I hid myself. It didn't say, we hid hid together. It's hinting at something here. Maybe Adam ran in one direction and Eve, they split up. I don't know. But at that moment, I realized this. I think this happened at this point, is that Adam emotionally abandoned his wife. There's another roadblock. It's really the brother of fear. It impacts our identity. Number four, it's this, is doubt. See, at that point, they were hiding. What's God going to do? And, and do you realize they had never experienced any kind of discipline in their lives? Do you see the radical shift that's going on in, in their identity? And yet somehow doubt floods in. And aren't we people at times where we doubt 
And I, I can think back to when you're in school and college, some of those times where, you know, you'd get those occasional those classes where your, your test, one of these tests would be like 50% of your grade. Remember those days? Maybe they don't do them anymore. I don't know. But we start thinking about that. And what if we go into that test and we know we haven't studied, we haven't prepared? And so we're going in kind of shaking and down. Okay, what if I get an F? F stands for failure to know. And what will my parents say to me? What will my parents do for me? What if this knocks my GPA down so I can't get a scholarship? You see, our identity all of a sudden gets confused in all of those issues. Will I be rejected if I fail? So let's hide. But there's one more roadblock on this issue of spiritual identity. It's number five. We look to find someone to blame when life doesn't work. We become a victim to the circumstances. Look at verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Do you understand what's taking place at this point? Adam is blaming the woman, but he's also blaming God. He's deflecting the reality of his own life. And it is shaping his identity at that point. God, you're the one to blame. See, when we become victims to what others have done and what others think about us, and when those roadblocks are part of our lives, and when we fail to deal with these roadblocks, there will be no spiritual power, no strength. See, do you catch the, the strength of Paul when he comes that he's sitting in prison and he goes, for me to live is Christ. And then the response to people and the world just doesn't go into himself. It isn't just Jesus and me. He's still thinking about other people in the midst of that. But see, people looked at him and would say, Paul was a failure for being in prison. And if Paul wouldn't have had an identity that said, for me to live is Christ, do you understand where he would have gone? God, you promised that if I served you, you were going to keep me from this stuff. God, why do, you, why do you do this to me? And he didn't do that. In prison, he goes, for me to live is Christ. We want to deflect and we want to blame. Now, here's what I got to say. Do we get here overnight? The answer is no. Just listening to a sermon like this, going from childhood identity to this next step, do we get there overnight? No. We don't. It's a process of change. And that's okay. So don't feel guilty. But here's where I want to challenge you again. Some of you that are older in your faith, you've been around years and years and years in your faith. I, I, I want to push you this way. And I want to put a statement on the screen for you on that. In order for 
Jimmy, you want to go to that next slide there? In order for a person to present somebody else complete in Christ, to help move somebody from children in that, where they're struggling with their identity, we must develop the skill of helping someone else deal with fear, with doubt, hiding, blaming, and shame. We need to be able to talk about this stuff. And parents, by the way, your kids might be dealing with it right now, with their identity. And it's figuring out how do you talk to people about this kind of stuff because it holds them back from moving their identity to a point where you're ultimately aiming for me to live is Christ. But here's one more piece. And elders, why don't you come on up for communion here? If you are someone who feels trapped right now, with shame and doubt and hiding and fear and blaming others. I just want to tell you, there is a pathway out of it. You don't have to stay there. We really don't. And we're going to dig into it next week, is how do you come to a place where you can begin to make steps away from an identity that's, all about those last few questions. Am I accepted? Am I love? Is somebody going to reject me? To a place where you're going, for me to live is Christ. How do we get to that place? And that's next week. But we want to celebrate <clears throat> communion here today. Guys, why don't you go ahead and hand out the bread? And you realize that even here, it's a symbol of God dealing with those five things in our lives. You realize he took the shame on himself. He was rejected. He was abandoned by his father. See, he's the, he's the image that we need to move toward. His understanding as how he did this plays into us having an identity that gives us strength and power. I'd encourage you just to hold the elements. We want to take them together here this morning. And we just want to just ponder, maybe as you're just even... Now, just take a moment and just say, thank God for the work that he's done on the cross that can begin to free us from all of these things that are holding us back. Holding us from a place where we can say, for me to live is Christ.